This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Under current federal law, every school district must report the progress they are making on one item other than student test performance to the federal government. To comply with this law, many states are asking school districts to report reductions in a certain kind of absenteeism known as chronic absenteeism. Students who are chronically absent don't have the opportunity to acquire an education. So the thinking is this is the first step toward making progress to make sure that students are learning something at school. The topic has attracted the interest of many scholars and one of the country's foremost experts on chronic absenteeism is Todd Rogers, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. Todd, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Paul. Todd, can you explain to our listeners, first of all, the difference between ordinary absenteeism, the kind of absenteeism I did as a kid, and chronic absenteeism? Sure, happy to. The ordinary absenteeism is maybe missing a few days a year when you're sick, when you have the flu, um, or for some other family emergency that is rare. Chronic absenteeism is often defined as missing 10% or more days. So basically missing the equivalent of almost a whole month of school or uh, one day every two weeks. So why do people focus on chronic absenteeism as the critical thing to look at instead of absenteeism more generally? Well, I think that there are a couple reasons. One, I think there is a widespread belief that missing two or three or four days a year uh, is often for reasons that are not salvageable. Maybe the kid is sick or something like that. And so maybe they're both excusable and acceptable um, and not an intervention wouldn't reduce. And maybe you don't want a kid with the flu coming to school. But a kid who misses 18, 20, 25 days, the idea is that those many of those are probably capturable, uh, that they're not all sickness or family emergencies, but some of them may be a little bit more uh, reclaimable. And so in addition to those things being great predictors of all the adverse outcomes we care about, graduation, test scores, later life, happiness. So you're saying this is a sign of bad things happening downstream. If you're chronically absent, you're going to be a dropout. You're not going to go on to college. There's a lot of bad things downstream that are going to happen to people who are chronically absent. That's that's what has led to much of this focus because it is, a, it is one of the best predictors of all the bad downstream things. So what percent of students are chronically absent? It depends on district, obviously, but nationally, I believe the number is one in seven. Uh, in some large districts, some large urban districts that I work in, I think the number approaches a quarter or more. So a, and just to put it in context, chronically absent means missing about a month or more of school. That, that's an amazing percentage, 25% in big cities, and you're saying more like 15% nationwide? I also heard something like 10%. Could it be somewhere in that range, 10 to 15%? Let's call it that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure the exact current number, so, but it's around there. Do districts really know how many students are chronic? Do they actually routinely track the chronic absenteeism rate? So this has been one of the breakthroughs that Hetty Chang and Attendance Works have uh, 
really move the dial on where they have help districts that have otherwise what seems like good attendance rates. A district may have 94% of kids showing up to school on any given day. And they say, oh, 94%, that's good. Move on, what's the next issue? But when you dive into that, what they start to realize is that it's very unevenly distributed. That there are some students who miss a ton of school and most students miss very little. And so hidden in these numbers that people thought were good, they when they look at it, they find that there's actually a concentration of the most at-risk kids seem to be missing the most school. Well, when I went to school, uh, they took uh, daily attendance very um, aggressively because they got money from the state for every day of attendance. The average daily attendance, ADA it was called, average daily attendance, was the basis for the determining state aid to the district. It was worth real dollars to have every kid in school. Why aren't states just, or districts just focusing on that because of the desire for money? That is a really good question. So in the U.S., by our estimates, something, by my lab and and team's estimates and an organization that I'm involved with, uh, we think that 40% of kids attend school, of kids in school districts with more than 20,000 kids, attend school districts that get paid per kid per day. So somewhere between 20 and call it 40% of kids do attend schools that get additional revenue for daily attendance. All of California, all of Texas are two of the states where state aid is distributed on daily attendance. So you would think that there'd be this big push for increasing revenue. and, and the money is substantial. So it's in, in California, it's somewhere between 50 and $70 per additional day of attendance. In Texas, it's harder to calculate, but we think somewhere between 30 and $40. Uh, why are they not focusing on it? I, I don't know. I mean, this is not what my research is on, but my, my operating theory is that there are not that many people in educational organizations that have a profit and loss statement. And so because of the organizational design, the only there is no incentive for an academic officer to increase revenue their job is to increase academic performance and the revenue comes next year so there's even this discount on future money even if they were incentivized and and they did have a pnl uh the only people who seem to really care about the pnl is the financial profit and loss the the the, the, the revenue for the district is the board kind of the superintendent and whoever assists the budget the, office or who, the finance who, officer, and whoever whoever assists right? the superintendent. Well, why doesn't the finance officer go over to the attendance officer and say, "Get the attendance up. We need the money." Paul, I have a question for you. Why doesn't the finance officer go over to the attendance officer <laughs> and say, "We need the money"? You, you. Why do you think? I don't know. Yeah, it's I, amazing. Uh, it's amazing. I, and and because there are some places where they have average uh, membership. Right. Massachusetts, I think, is one of those. Yeah, so it's only October 15th. So they, you bring out the donuts on October 15th to get all the kids in school on that date. But um, yeah, that's he, not the reason. There's more to it. It's just that some people aren't, I mean, that educators don't necessarily think about dollars. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, educators are in the business because they want to help kids. And that their entire professional focus has been day-to-day, how do we help kids do better? And then this is thinking of it as an organization that has to deal with revenue and budget. And frankly, in a big, in any given school district, there's very few people as a fraction of the people there 
who are worried on a day-to-day basis about the the budget. And what's also I just want to what's also weird about it, or maybe predictable but but not helpful, is the revenue comes in next year. And so any investment now you have to have you have to have liquidity. Effectively, you would borrow against that. If you were an organization, you know, if we were a company, we'd borrow money, pay it back next year, and we'd generate revenue today and pay it back with the net revenue. But like, there's not that kind of fungible budget, so there isn't really financial investments to to recapture new revenue. So that's interesting. So now, how about this uh, chronic apps? Is it the little kids who are absent all the time or is it the high schoolers who are going to drop out pretty soon and so they don't bother coming to do what's the rate of chronic absenteeism by age or grade level well it's greatest in three grades by my my recollection of looking at our data and lots of other people's kindergarten basically this transition to school uh Ninth grade, transition to high school, and then 11th, 12th grade, towards the end. Uh, kindergarten's a particularly interesting one for me because these families, the kids are getting to school. Uh, fewer, they, they're, not getting, they're not attending school as much as we would like. But then by first grade, it decreases. Uh, absences decrease. Attendance stabilizes, which means that what was happening in kindergarten is not an immutable fact of the family. Maybe that's part of kindergarten, learning to go to school, get up in the morning, get there on time, learn how to get your lunch together or, or, or whatever needs to be done before you can get off to school and otherwise you just don't go to school. Maybe that's one of the functions of kindergarten. That sounds right, like a lot of the socializing for school and part of the socializing is showing up on time each day. Yeah, and then ninth grade is this, this pivotal transition that I think what the spike in absences reflects all the things that are going on in this this transition, which is really perilous for at-risk kids. So why are students chronically absent? What do you think are some of the major causes of, and you've already suggested one with respect to kindergartners, but in more generally, what do you see as some of the major causes? So we, start, we talked about one, which is health. Let's say flu, asthma, um, other kinds of illnesses. But there are hundreds of reasons, but I'll, I'll just throw some out. We find that if you and I are siblings, Paul, and I miss school today, there's, and you and I both miss school 10% of the time. If I miss school today, you have a 50% chance of missing school too. So siblings miss school together. Why? Could be that we're both sick. Could be that there's something going on in our family that can't get either of us to school. Could be that one sibling is staying home and the other sibling wants to stay home, the other parent demands that the other kids stay home, et cetera. So there's sibling relationships. Um, could be the kid doesn't want to go to school. There could be bullying. There could be safety issues. Uh, it could be that the parent is working a night shift and doesn't have bandwidth to, hasn't made plans to get the kid to school. Could be that there, and this is a common one, that there are illnesses or family emergencies outside of the immediate family where they have to go visit the aunt and they bring the kids along. So, but, but you can see on all of these, there's a margin where the parent can push back. Even in the kindergarten, from kindergarten to 12th grade, there are different reasons a kid would be absent, but each of them has, parents have some influence, and they can push more or less on getting the kid to school more. So you are really interested in reducing chronic absenteeism, and you're really doing some important research. So let's talk about one of your most important studies, the one you did in Philadelphia. 
What, what was it that you did to try to reduce absenteeism in the Philadelphia School District, and, and how, how did you design it in such a way as to find out whether or not it worked? Okay, so I really like the study. We've replicated now 15 times with something like 250,000 families. Uh, it starts with the observation in surveys that parents have two widespread false beliefs. One, parents underestimate their own kids' absences by a factor of two. So if my kid has missed 20 days, I think my kid has missed 10 days. We see this across districts. They lose track of how many days their kid has been absent. And two, parents of kids who miss more school than their classmates, the majority of those parents think that their kid has missed the same or less school than their classmates. 100% of them have missed more than their classmates, but the majority think they've missed the same or less. But well, we always remember the good things we've done and forget the bad things we've done, right? That's just human nature. Right. This is like the Lake Wobegon effect, where all the kids are above average. Uh, and so observing those two facts, it's not obvious that those kind of erroneous beliefs, the kind of what we call misbeliefs, are matter. It could be that they're, uh, it's a fancy word, it could be they're epiphenomenal, that they're, they actually don't drive anything. They're irrelevant. Uh, or it could be that those false beliefs, correcting them, could motivate parents to get their kids to school more. So inspired by these home energy reports that uh, some friends of mine uh, do started an organization that does this around the country, and I'm sure some of your listeners received in the mail reports comparing their energy use to their neighbors. They get them in the mail yeah, once I a month. Yeah, throw those away right away. Everybody says that. Everybody <laughs> says that. Uh, but they, they send them monthly or quarterly. They're one in four U.S. households receives them. They are in 15 countries. They do everything as a randomized control trial. And what they, they've seen is that they reduce energy use the equivalent of increasing the price of energy by 20 or 25%. It's by far the most effective way to reduce energy use anyone has ever uncovered besides technology change. Uh, and the effect grows over time. I have a paper where we've studied it over four years or five years, 300,000, 250,000 households. So I was thinking maybe we could do the same. Yeah, that's because I never waste energy in the first place. Paul, it's because you're better than your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, maybe maybe not you, but other uh, those who are worse than their neighbors have a lot of room for that's improvement. That's fascinating. Actually. Uh, it, it's yeah. We and so it does two things. It corrects this false belief about how many days they've missed or how much energy they've used and how that compares to other people. And so we did this in Philadelphia in a, in a pretty complicated experimental design, which you and I were talking about previously. Uh, but the, the big takeaway is we, we have a control group and we have a bunch of different treatment arms where we send these mailings throughout the year uh, conveying information that targets these beliefs. So in other words, you send some people, but not everybody. You pick some people at random and you send them a something in the mail that says your child has been absent six days out of 10 in the last three weeks or something like that, right? Exactly, something like that. Uh, not in the last three weeks. Over the course of the year, your kid has missed seven days. Uh, and we write it at a fourth grade reading level to make it easy for people to understand. We also show it graphically. Uh, and it turns out, for your listeners, if anyone's curious, we've done a lot of user testing that for people who are low in numeracy, not comfortable with numbers, reading a graph left to right is way easier to understand than up and down. Horizontal is way easier for normal people to understand than vertical, whereas we are used to probably presenting vertical graphs, um, or I am used to presenting vertical graphs. Uh, 
So we, so we present it in as, as comprehensible a way as possible. And we find we send four or five of these throughout the year to 30,000 families so in Philadelphia. So Education Next is a journal, and from now on, we're only going to use horizontal graphs. This is a rule. Good. Then this whole discussion <laughs> has been worth it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, although, because although, we just put together some vertical graphs, and I'm just thinking, why didn't we tip those horizontally? But it could be that your, your audience is more numerate, is like a particularly numerate group. And so maybe, but you probably have some readers who are not, and it would be easier for them if you weren't left or right. Uh, so, so we we run the, this basically modeled after these energy reports, control group that doesn't randomly chosen, treatment group, thou, tens of thousands thousands of families that get some version of these letters for throughout the year, and we find that it reduces chronic absenteeism ten to fifteen percent, and that was great. And we, that's, that's, that was the first Okay, one. now 10% is so if they're absent 30 days, it'll be a reduction of about three days. So it's a reduction in, in the, there's a lot of different ways to analyze things. And because the policy relevant way to analyze it tends to be who's chronically absent and who's not, because that's the policy level, it's, it's a 10% reduction in the number of students who are chronically absent. There's also an effect oh, on the uh, number. 10% in the number of students who cross that bar. Yes. And, and, and we generate additional days of attendance, obviously, to do that. Uh, and these, this intervention generates, we'll call it uh, 1 to 1.5 to 1, or 1 to 1.7 days of additional attendance per treated household. So an, an, another couple of days yeah. of, of going to school, just about. Right. And uh, so, Okay, so what do you say to those who say, all very nice, and it's better than nothing, but that doesn't really amount to too much? Great. I, I agree. It is not enough on its own. Um, but what it is, is not, so I, may I wrap up the, I, I will give it 15 seconds, I promise. I know I, 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 I'm long-winded. We then replicate it in Chicago public schools with 20,000 families. We then replicate it in 10 districts in California. All of the, each of the replications, 10 to 15% reduction in chronic absenteeism. Uh, and so then addressing your question, uh, what, do we, what do I say to people who say, oh, well and good, it doesn't solve the problem? Totally agree. Uh, I don't really think there are silver bullets. I think solving a problem is going to be a collection of lots of things. But what we do know is that this is extraordinarily cost-effective per net day captured. So it's about 50 to 100 times cheaper than other strategies that we know about per day that it generates. Well, let's talk about those other strategies. What okay. are some other things that people have done? Um, the, the next best known intervention for which there is a randomized experiment evaluating it is mentors, truancy officers, social workers. Uh, it was done in Chicago public schools. Yes, a good friend of mine it told me that this is the way to reduce chronic absenteeism is you've got to get a mentor and somebody's going to work with that person. And, and when I heard that story, I said, yeah, good luck. You've got to find a lot of mentors. Right. So it's really hard to scale that. But, the, but it also turns out it's pretty expensive. Uh, so the, the only randomized experiment evaluating that was done in Chicago where they assign, they hire full-time mentors who are in the schools. They handle a caseload of 20 to 30 students. They check in with the kid twice a week. They check in with the parents twice a month. So, and it's a year-long program. And it seems to reduce absenteeism zero to three days throughout the year in total. 
Um, so not that much not, more than what you were able to accomplish no, and with the little uh, letter in the mail. A, a psychologically sophisticated letter in the mail uh, that's, that's tailored and tested well, it's gonna and optimized. It's going to be little. A, a psychologically sophisticated letter little is going to be yeah. brief. <laughs> <laughs> right. And intentionally brief. This is the thing. We have one district that we, we informed about this, and they tried to do it themselves. They only got around to doing one round, but they turned our fourth grade reading level letter entirely focused on reducing absenteeism into a newsletter about everything that was going on in the school that was eight-point font and completely unfocused which is, it was a, we're like, we're communicating with families, let's tell them everything. But in that case, more is less because a family that receives it probably doesn't even read it. I actually, at my kids' school here in Cambridge Public Schools, I used to uh, beg the parent liaison, and we're really lucky they had a parent liaison who sends home a seven-page newsletter every week. <laughs> and I used to beg her, I said, I will pay you a hundred, I will pay th this for this. On page six, in the middle of it, put a sentence saying, if you're reading this, come to my office and I'll give you $100. Just to like, I wanted to show her that no one has read it. And that like, it, it seems super useful, but it's not, and it's not her fault. She just has the wrong theory. She's trying to give everything useful to everybody, but in the process makes it not useful to anybody. Yeah, um, no, this, is, this is good. So you're saying that this is almost as effective and a lot less expensive than setting up a system of mentoring. I don't, I, I don't even need to say that it's almost as effective. It, the, the experimental evidence, there's more, more work needs to be done on the, on the mentoring and truancy officer side. But we do know that the best estimate is that it costs about $500 per net day generated when using mentors, per additional day it gets generated. And with this across these replications, it costs, we've seen that it costs 6 to $7 per additional day generated. Well, I know you've looked at some other strategies as well as, as this one. I know this is the one you're the most excited about, but there's some other interesting ones that you, one you tried out in California with the Attorney General's help. Oh, yeah. good. Yes, this is with, uh, with Hetty Chang, who runs Attendance Works, and uh, Kamala Harris, when she was Attorney General, gave, uh, sort of gave us guidance on this. Nearly every state has some notice of truancy, that uh, it's a state law written by lawyers, uh, written at a college reading level. It's for families when their kid misses a certain number of schools. School districts are mandated to send these letters home. So it's usually very, very complicated. Usually the first sentence refers to the legal code that, that this is in reference to. Uh, very hard to comprehend, usually to seven-point font. So in California, we, working with a large district, we randomized 150,000 families, which letter they got. And the, we gave them the standard letter, which was almost incomprehensible. I, I actually, I have written a paper about it and I've studied it for four years. I am now for the first time confessing, I've never read the letter entirely. <laughs> I've only read the first three sentences and then got bored and it didn't matter. <laughs> I, I, that, that, I'm sorry to, I've, whoever your yeah. listeners are. Oh gosh, even, even and you're a researcher. On this very topic, you, and, and you won't even read the material you're sending I, out I to couldn't, people. I couldn't read the standard one. It was written as if it wasn't for humans. It was written as if it was for lawyers. And so uh, so what we did was we simplified it, and we turned it into 16-point font written at a fifth-grade reading level, just super easy to understand. And we said, we're worried about your kid's attendance and a couple of other sentences. And we found that that simplified version was 50% more effective than the standard one. And it's like... You and I, I was describing to you a moment ago that, uh, you know, the psychologically sophisticated. The reason this is psychologically sophisticated, here's the insight from psychology. 
we should communicate as if we intend to be understood. <laughs> That's the big takeaway from that paper. It took me years, years yeah. and years. <laughs> we should communicate as if we intend to be understood. Well, that is something they do teach in English, or at least the, my freshman English teacher was one of my favorite teachers, actually taught me. So I am very grateful to her for uh, teaching me this most important psychological lesson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I want to ask you this question. Great, we've reduced chronic absenteeism, at least somewhat. Do we see any effect on academic performance? There are, there are several ways to answer that. The first is, in the data, we see very strong relationship between missing more school and lower academic performance. When you miss a lot of school, you do worse. We also see in the data this interesting pattern that uh, that a kid who misses school the week before the te standardized test, uh, that those days seem to predict performance on the test the best, as if there is test prep going on. And if a kid misses a test prep day, the consequence on the test is, can be relatively substantial. Again, correlationally. Uh, in ours, because we only capture one or two days out of 180 possible days, the statistical power required to detect a realistic effect uh, would require, this is a complicated sentence, we would need two million students in a randomized experiment to reliably detect the kind of effect we would expect is realistic from capturing one or two days. But what we hope is that this simple intervention will be part of a bigger program complementing other interventions that can capture together six, ten, so we don't know days. for sure is sort of what you're telling me, but nonetheless, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that you're going to learn more if you're in, the, in, in, your, in your desk at school. Yeah, so the way I, I usually open talks is when I'm showing this evidence, I say, look, here's the theory. The theory is that in order to learn in school, you need to be in school. And so the relationship between attending school and doing well on tests is consistent with that. And I, and I leave it there. People think I'm joking, but I'm actually sort of an experimentalist. And like, I, you know, that I believe that theory, but I also know that we don't have very strong causal evidence about much in education. But it is common sense. It is completely commonsensical. So uh, thank you very much, Todd. I've been speaking with Todd Rogers, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and a nationwide expert on chronic absenteeism. Thank you for joining me, Todd. Thank you for having me. This is Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.